Welcome to Limitless, how to crush it in commercial real estate. The show that gets you inside access to how some of retail real estate's most successful leaders went from your average Joe Schmo to the CEO. I'm your host, Aaron Zucker. In this episode, we hear the story about how Chris Sands walked away from his lifelong dream with no money and no plan to building one of the nation's top investment sales brokerage firms, Sands Investment Group, which has sold an incredible $4.5 billion in real estate since its inception across the country. Hey, everybody. Aaron Zucker here, the host of Limitless, How to Crush It in Commercial Real Estate. Wanted to take a quick second and thank the guys over at Cas Source, who are a phenomenal agency that helped me put together this idea of creating this podcast into a reality. They're willing and able to not only put together podcasts, but any other great marketing content that you may need. And I'd highly recommend reaching out to them. Chris, thanks for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Really excited you were able to make it up here. Before we even get into any of the SIG stuff and how successful your career has been, give me the background. Like, Where are you from? How did you grow up? Give us your 30-second story on where you're from and what your family life was like. Perfect. So I'm one of six kids right in the middle. There's a 20-year spread between my oldest brother and my youngest brother. No way. Yeah, I've got three brothers, two sisters. So did your oldest brother... And your youngest sibling, like, do people think that they were the parents? Oh, yeah, it's nuts. They, I mean, they have a good relationship, but it's a completely different dynamic. I've got the best of both worlds, and then I'm right in the middle. So I have really good relationship with my older brothers, and then my kid sister that are twins, and then my little brother and I are very tight. So it was a really interesting upbringing. My dad's a dentist. My mom made babies. Okay. And, uh, you know, big Italian Catholic family, and kind of fun. We had a ton of stories about doing things that probably need to write a book about, never to say, nevertheless. But I do. Yeah. The only reason I bring that up is that I do think it played into a little bit of that middle kid syndrome and, and <laughs> always wanting to make sure I got like the last bite of dinner or something like that in okay. terms of my career and how we expanded and what we ended up doing. So and where'd you grow up? I grew up in Los Gatos, California, okay. near Santa Cruz, just about 45 minutes south of San Francisco. Got it. A little bit of a culture shock moving to the East Coast, Slightly. huh? Yeah. yeah. So, okay. That was there for one to 18 and then ended up going to UCLA. I played tennis growing up as well. Played soccer, baseball through 14 years old, roughly. Okay. Loved them all. Did, you know, played them to the degree that I enjoyed them and was having fun. And then tennis was the only one that offered free clothes because I was playing good enough. And so I got sponsored by Adidas and I was like, oh, this is cool. I get to have free clothes. And so I'd go through every year. I'd get Christmas that would happen. And then I saw, I had to call it my second Christmas where I'd order all my gear and was ranked sixth in the country in tennis. Nationally. Wow. And, and as most kids do, when you started when you were five, I burned out right when I was about to get recruited to most colleges. So when you went to UCLA to play tennis or... Well, yeah. So I ended up, I was ready to get recruited to almost every school I wanted to. And I uh, decided I just got burnt out. And I tried going into like the mainstream growing up as a kid thing for about three months. Was hanging out with some friends on a Friday night. And I'm like, this is stupid. What you guys are doing? And I got back out of the courts. I worked my way back in, and through the grace of God, got an opportunity to uh, get an opportunity to play at UCLA. Wow. Yeah, so... So that three-month period, did you hate tennis for three months? I didn't hate tennis. I wanted to be a kid. Mm-hmm. That was the thing, you know? And I grew up playing... From the time I was six, I was playing tournaments. I was eight years old. I was playing 10-year-old, 10 and under. When sure. I was 10, I was playing 12 and under. Every weekend would be birthdays or friends would be doing something and I'd be, you know, traveling, whatever, in car by playing tournaments. And it was fun for a while, but you just get sick of it. After. Right. The Holiday Inn and, uh, yeah. and McDonald's got, got old after a while. Yeah. That makes sense. So I don't know why I'm so curious about this three-month stretch, but did you play recreationally at all? Like if your buddy wanted to go hit it on Saturday Zero. afternoon? No. Zero. I mean, I was cold turkey and my dad, I really give it, I mean, they're like my 
talking about my greatest mentors, my mom and my dad are unbelievable. I, I respect them and look up to them so much just from how to run a family and be great parents and yeah. as well as just life lessons. And my dad said, listen, if you don't play sports competitively, you have to work. So we had a local deli around the corner called Eric's Deli. And I used to go there and, you know, on weekends in between a match or something like that. And I always used to be like, man, it would stink to have to work at this place. My dad said, you had a good, good job. So he's like, I'm not giving you, and you have to make enough money to support transportation too. And I thought, figured out that to spend money to go drive somewhere and figure it out, I was like, I just walked there, Excel and worked there. So for three months, I worked there. I made sandwiches. It was the best and worst experience of my life. Best in that it taught me I never wanted to do that. <laughs> Side note, I think every kid should work in a restaurant. I totally agree. So I was a food runner at an upscale Spanish restaurant here in town. The summer between my junior and senior year, and then between my sophomore and junior year, I delivered pizzas. And yeah. I agree with you. Yeah. It's sort of like pledging a fraternity, yeah. right? It's a great thing, but you don't want to do it twice. No. no. So, but it teaches you in our personal skills. It teaches you customer service. And it just gives you a little bit of that edge to say, I do or don't want to do this for the rest of my career. And so I'm really right. glad my dad made me do that. And the other lesson that I loved about restaurants, I didn't love it at the time, but in hindsight, I do. You learn that it may not be your fault, right. but it's your problem. So like when the food takes a long time to come out from the kitchen and you're running it out there, you're the one taking the brunt, even though you weren't the one cooking it. I think there's a lot of value to that lesson. It sucks at the time, but there's a lot of value to that lesson. Okay. One of my favorite stories is after like, I kind of got it down and my best friend's dad came in after church on Sunday and he's like, Hey, and he was this big, big, like meat eater. So he orders this huge corned beef sandwich and his name was Terry Daly. And I was like, all right, I'll get you the corned beef sandwich. I went back. I was so nervous to serve him. He was the mayor of town. Like actually the mayor or like the dad. Oh, and wow. So I was just like, cool. And so I was like, I went back and I made the sandwich up. I was such a rush to get it back to him. And I forgot to put the meat in it. But I put like, <laughs> I put cheese and bread and like, you know, the thousand dollar dressing and the coleslaw. And I didn't put the corned beef in. And he, he looked at me and he's like, oh, this is a good joke. And I'm like, yeah, good joke. Go <laughs> back. And I was like, holy God, I can't believe I forgot to put the meat in. There you go. The first uh, broker bullshitting story of Chris Sands lying about leaving the corned beef out of a sandwich. That's I like it. it. That's where it all stemmed from. So Nice. Yeah. So you're working in the restaurant. And when did the light bulb go off? I was at a party on a Friday night. My dad said, you can go, but you know, come back this curfew. I was sitting there. I was watching all my friends hang around a pool and they were drinking and doing what they do. And I was looking at them like, this is so stupid. This is not where I want to go. And I knew that I had done something great up to that point. I was really gifted with something and I was just thrown away. And that was kind of a life lesson. I think one where I realized that you have these talents that you're given in life mm-hmm. and that it's your role you make the most of those. Everybody's got a certain amount of talent. And I think that a lot of people either one shortchange themselves or they don't believe in themselves or number two, they don't take it and make the most of it. And so if there's anything I can inspire anybody on in terms of listening to this is realize that you have a gift, whatever that is, find out that gift is and go make the most of it. And I think then you will have success no matter what you do. I couldn't agree anymore. And your inspiration is motivating to me it resonates with me, right? My grandparents were Holocaust survivors. Actually, very similarly, built a similar family to how your parents did. They had five kids, 18 years apart. Really? My dad's the middle one. So so you're, what you're saying yeah. definitely hits home to me somewhat. I, I definitely don't know what it's like to be one of five or six, <laughs> nor do I want to be. But I would tell you that that totally resonates with me, that story that you have and how your inspiration came. And like, you were lucky that you were given this talent Clearly, like you were genetically disposed to be an athlete and play tennis, but really what makes your story inspiring, especially going back into work and, and losing grip of it for three months, you could have easily just sat on the 
couch and continue eating potato chips, but you chose not to because you realized that you had an opportunity that was granted to you and you didn't just walk through that crack door. You decided to open it back up and run through it, it sounds like. Right, 100%. And you're going to have doubts and you'll have moments where you're burnt out in anything you want to do. But I think the difference between people that are successful and that are highly successful is that they're willing to look at the big picture and push through to that next step. Right. Because anything you want to do that's great takes time. Right. Bottom line. Yeah. I think our society screwed up a little bit because we all want instant gratification. Like everybody wants to look like they're in shape and it's obvious what you need to do to be in shape. You have to eat well and exercise. And no matter what you do, if you exercise once and eat one good meal, you're not going to wake up the next day and have a six pack. That's not how the world works. Exactly. It's a daily routine, right? Right. And it's easier to actually go the other way than it is to get advancements in that last sort of like 2% of life, right? So if you want to be that much more fit, you want to be that much more successful, you have to push that extra mile or that extra 2% in order to have that extra success. I think a lot of people stop at a certain tipping point, which is okay. You just got to find your space and know where you are and be okay with it. Right. A lot of people, especially in today's day and age, want it, but they're not willing to do what it takes to get there. Right. And and the beauty of it is the answers are right in front of you. It's not rocket science. I mean, especially with what we do. I mean, retail real estate, it's complex in a lot of ways, but it's not brain surgery. Let's call it, let's not call it something. I feel like we're curing cancer every day. I don't know about you. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. Sorry, I tell myself. There you go. Well, you'd make a terrible doctor. We've learned. Me too. That's why neither of us follow our parents' footsteps. So you have the epiphany that you didn't want to sit around and watch other kids get high and drunk because I know you never touched that. We never, never did it once. Yep. And you decide to get back into tennis. And this is, how old are you at that time? So I'm 16. Okay. I was ranked six in the country. I had to gain my ranking back, which took me almost a year. Sure. Took me out of eligibility for almost major scholarships to most of the colleges. Which, by the way, a year feels fast to me. It's fast, but it's not when you've spent, you know, nine or 10 building up sort of, you know, you talk about branding and reputation. A lot of college schools were looking at me at Stanford, all the Ivy League schools, you name it. And all of a sudden it was like, where'd he go? What happened? Yeah. So I remember going back to my local club that I grew up at courtside and I picked off one of the coaches. It was more of a junior coach. And he worked with a lot of the younger players. His name was John Ryan, super good guy. And I said, listen, John, here's what we'll do. Every day when you're done, when are you done with your lessons? And he's like, I'm done at four o'clock. I said, okay, cool. And I said, from four to five 30, all I want you to do is I'll empty a basket, you empty a basket. We'll load up. We had this huge basket of balls and I want to just go side to side. I want you to just drill me. You hit balls side to side and I'll run back and forth until the basket's empty. I'll pick them up and then you do it. We'll do the same thing. And we did that for a summer, literally every single day, save Sunday. Mm-hmm. And so by the time I got back into my rankings, I started playing again and I was playing in the nationals. I played the number one recruit at UCLA Okay. and head coach of UCLA was sitting there behind the court and this kid was supposed to trounce me. And I beat him 7-5 in the first set. And there you go. crumbled and I beat him. And that was like sort of my foray into getting into UCLA. Yeah. And it was like a drug at that point. It was it. Yeah. yeah. You, you were hooked. You were back in. It was it. And I think the thing that's, that there's some relevance to what we're talking about was the opportunity was then presented to go to other schools where I could have played number one at USC, the other USC on the other side of the coast. Yeah. And others, good schools, but UCLA was number one in the country at the time. Right. And I thought I'd rather play in an environment where it was the best of the best and be number six the last guy on the, on the roster and work my way up, then play in an environment where I was best. And I wasn't getting pushed every day in terms of where I played. Love that. I love that. We can segue into real estate at any point you want. Yeah. It sounds like there might be a whole separate podcast to be on about just your tennis career. So you yeah. go to UCLA yep. and you're playing tennis. So continue on with the story because at some point you're going to get into real estate, but I want to hear about what's going on in your college life. And Yeah. So I played for four years, uh, captain the team the last year. 
we were match point away from winning NCAAs. That's another story like we talked about in a different podcast where we talk about mental toughness or lack thereof. And then um, at the end of the day, we go, I meet my wife at the time, didn't know it. My senior year, her sophomore year, she's on the springboard diving team and platform diving team. Had a dream when I was six years old, I wrote it in a journal that I was going to be a professional tennis player. So I got out of school and as I was graduating, again, total divine intervention moment, but I had one of my past compadres or people that was 65 years old, this guy named Greg Savadli. And my hat's off to him. I call him one of my guardian angels. The guy was an old club member at the club courtside that I referenced. And he and I bumped into each other when I was back visiting my parents. And he said, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm really interested in getting out on the tour and playing professional tennis. I've had a dream of doing this. And he said, I'm going to rally around you because I've always liked you. And I'm going to help promote your name out in the club and the community. And I want to help you raise money to get out on the tour. How much money do you need? So I told him the amount of money. And in the next three months, he introduced me to every person in the club. Wow. He introduced me to everybody he knew. And I raised enough capital to get out on the tour. And I basically it was my first syndication. How much money was it? It was $18,500 in an Apple computer from Dan Riccio, who worked at Apple Computers. Who got yeah. a computer to be able to met, like, yeah. sign so, up. So your budget was really 20 Gs, but luckily the guy threw in the computer. Okay. So again, I don't know why this was my course of action in life, but I figured out that I could play US-based pro tournaments and get started. I could also go out and go to like New Zealand and hit some of the futures and the challengers out there, or I can go to Europe and play the hardest tournaments that possibly could be done on clay court. Okay. I think I have a guess of where you end up. And I decided to move to Barcelona for four months and play clay court tennis. And it was an unbelievable experience. I've seen more parts of the world than I ever hoped to. I hope to see a lot more from a different lens. (laughs) Sure. But I've been, you know, on a scooter in Paris, riding around, going to tournaments and stashing money in my pocket as we won pro tournaments to beat Pete Sampras in a set, which was my only claim to fame, really, on a, on a pro level. That was good uh, in my book. Yeah, 6-4, broke him. So I, I nice. could break him on a serve. He trounced me two days later at his own home courts. And to put into context, for listeners who are either too young to know who Pete Sampras is or aren't familiar with tennis, he was number one in the world with him and Agassi were basically, you know, LeBron and, and Kobe in their primes yep. respectively against each other. Yep. And he was known for his serve. Yep. And you were able to break his serve on, on that, that one day you caught him at that right time. Yeah. And this goes to show a lot about your grit and being able to face him right in the fire and not back down from a challenge. In yeah. fact, step up or total luck for that matter. Yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. Right. yeah it's like kind of like having a hole in one by yourself. Right. Exactly. <laughs> it's okay. Well, but one time we'll he was for a while, he was the go. Yeah, he for sure. More grand slams than anyone. And unfortunately I can no longer say that I took a set off the number one player in the world right. forever, but it's all good. Still a good claim. To so you're playing, so playing playing at the tour. I come back for a tour and stint between Europe. And then I was going back to Romania and Croatia. My wife, again, my girlfriend at the time, she were doing the whole distance thing, growing closer, ironically, while traveling than if we were together. Well, yeah, she spoke yeah, English, which probably helped you when nice. you were yeah. talking to somebody. <laughs> it turns out the tennis groupies are not the greatest crew to find your, you know, probably future spouse. And long story short, I ended up, I was in between a stint and I was supposed to do a bunch of European tours. And she's like, hey, we're done if you keep going. And it was funny because I just started to hit this tipping point where I thought I was ready to keep playing. Yeah. But I knew that something bigger was being called to do. How old are you at this time? I was 22 at the time. Okay. Yeah. And so I'd been playing for two years on the tour. Okay. I'd made enough money to stay out there and kind of, you know, figure out a way to kind of keep everybody happy and so, so on and so forth. Came back and I decided I was going to do a local tour. And I went and played in front of all my sponsors. Okay. And I think this is another like moment that was kind of fun to sort of share. 
that things happen in life. And so I had all my sponsors in Santa Cruz at this challenger that I got a wild card into. And I had my whole family there and everyone that supported me was there. And I played the guy, his name was Philip Levy. And he had just beat Sampras two weeks before in a tournament. Okay. The guy was on fire. Sure. And he beat me 6-1, 6-2 handily. And I like double faulted more than I've ever double faulted. I played probably one of the worst matches I've played in my career. Okay. And it was super embarrassing. And I got off the court and I'm looking at all my peers and all the people that supported me and then put money behind me and my family. And it was one of those moments where I think, you know, you have to dig deep and say, all right, is this what it's meant to be for me? And I literally had that turning point where I knew that it was it. Okay. And I, I knew that it was okay to be done. Okay. And it wasn't that I was giving up. It was just that I knew that after playing for two years out of the tour, that my heart wasn't into it. That even if I fast forward and put myself as one of the top 10 players in the world, it still wasn't a quality of life that I really desired. And so it wasn't fair to them. It wasn't fair to my girlfriend at the time. It wasn't fair to my investors, the people behind. And so I, I, you know, I didn't do it right there, but I basically, after the fact, told all of them, I gratefully appreciated everything that they had done. And I really made sure that they all felt supported. And I told them, thanks for the opportunity. And we figured out a plan where I gave them a ton of test lessons <laughs> right. after the fact. Right. And I got into basically temporarily teaching tennis lessons. Sure. Which leads As a way to pay some debt, basically. Basically. Just to kind of figure out a way to make money when you're fresh off the tour, you can charge a lot of money. And sure. People love to play with an ex-pro player. Sure. And so I was teaching tennis lessons in Northern California. And what I started doing was interviewing all my clients and asking them, after I did teach them how to back in our forehand, hey, what do you do for a living? Right. Because you just paid me an extremely, a lot of money to hit tennis balls for 45 minutes. Yeah. Like you, you clearly have means. So yeah. what do you do? Yeah. I think there's therapy. There's going to get like the hair salon. And then there's like tennis instruction in terms of people divulging information about their life. That it's unbelievable. I know more about people's lives by teaching somebody how to serve than I should ever. And so ironically, I was like, well, if you're going to open up to me, I'm going to open up to you. Help out this young guy who's hungry. What do you do? And so I got a chance to shadow and basically do internships with a myriad of different people. Oh, cool. So and tell me the different industries that you got exposed to. CMO of a huge company that was in tech. I got to meet a guy that bought all the technology off of the shelves at an electronics store. And he and his brother then figured out a way to do it cheaper. And building it. And then he went out and he sold it for 120 million bucks. Okay. That's a few shekels. Yeah. So we had good talks about that. I had a guy that was the number one life insurance. He owned a company and sold life insurance and was the number one life insurance policy guy in Northern California. I had a stockbroker that split the shares for Microsoft Sun and was like worth 80 million bucks. I had a guy, I mean, I can go on. It's crazy. So what I like about where you're going eventually, I mean, we all know that you end up in real estate. That's not a secret. Yeah. It looks like you had some at least limited exposure to all kinds of different stuff. A bunch of different things. And what I did, and this is another teaching moment for anyone that wants to, let's younger wanting to figure out, and I tell this to younger people all the time, is come up with a legend of the things that you want in the, your career. So things for me that were important was I wanted to make sure I was interacting with people because I love people. I wanted to make sure that what I did made a difference. I wanted to make sure that I could do something that the sky's the limit on earning. It wasn't something that I had to work my way up a bureaucratic totem pole or something mm -hmm. like that. I wanted to make sure that whatever I did had the skill set or the education to teach me how to invest into something. So I wasn't just building a career and then trying to figure out who goes invest my money somewhere else. I have a vision or a goal that no matter what I did, I didn't wear a suit, which I normally don't wear a suit. So this is just... Pretty so just on the record, <laughs> for those of you who are listening, Chris is wearing a blue suit today. So this is breaking that he dressed up for this, for this incredible cool. podcast. That's how I do it. So other than that, I had four or five key things in my legend. And then I did is I took those things and I went and I basically matched them up to every opportunity they had. 
and figured out would this hit sort of that happiness quotient of the if that legend of what it hit. So I might have missed this and I apologize. Did you come across a broker in your tennis lesson? So I had three people that owned commercial real estate. So you noticed the pattern. Two of them were at Marcus and Millichap, high up guys that had run the national, basically were the national heads for office industrial. Another guy was a big just broker. He sold office buildings and a little bit of multifamily. And after learning a lot about all these different genres of business, I met these two guys. And the best part about their quality of life was that they owned these properties that paid for my lessons. And they would take these lessons at like 10 o'clock in the morning. So my option was either go unwind engineering software and sell it for 120 million bucks, or which didn't hit my human interaction skills. Sure. So, or go out and do something where I knew I can get into something that had passive income, long-term growth, all the things that I looked for. And so commercial real estate hit that cylinder. What year is this? This is 2003. Okay. Yeah. So the market's good. Yeah. It's after the dot-com bubble. It's before the recession. It's not on fire, It's yeah. but it's it's on the incline too. So yeah. So my guy was at Marcus. He said, let me get you an interview in the San Jose office. I also got an interview in LA and I interviewed with both, got accepted jobs. And I sent it, it basically based on market opportunity. And my girlfriend was there and we said, all right, this is a chance to finally live in the same city. And moved, packed up and moved down and uh, stayed with one of my buddies who was still out on the tour and basically was living in like a little nook. No joke. Just trying to figure out how to put two ends together and still teaching tennis lessons on the side. And I started at M&M in 2003. In San Jose. In Southern California. And the number one office in the country. That helps. Again. Just like your tennis choice going to UCLA, right? You know, it'd be like going to the triple net pro group in New York or whatever it may be with Marcus or going to the top producing office or or top producing broker shop, which nobody can deny Marcus and Millichap's platform. It's enormous. And picking their number one office in the country. I mean, I'm sure it was very cutthroat and competitive there, but it's also where if you want to be top 1% of the top 1%, that's probably where you want to have exposure. Yes. And I have such admiration for the company. And so only good things will be said. I think it was a great platform for teaching me what I do want to do and what I didn't want to do. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the catalyst. It was a seven year teaching, you know, selling shopping centers, single tenant, mostly it was power centers, shopping centers, strip centers, you name it. Uh, Started in Southern California, worked my way nationally. And kind of work my way up the food chain within the firm. Yeah, well, and I know you're, you'd be the last one to say this verbally, so I'll go ahead and say it for you. I understand you were Rookie of the Year your first year. I was, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that doesn't just happen. Any, I mean, there's people out there listening right now who are interested in getting started in the business or have been in the business for a little bit and are, are you know, maybe crashing on their friend's couch, right? Because they got into brokerage and they're not making any money yet and they see the potential down the line. What's the secret sauce to being Rookie of the Year at a company of that size and producing at that level? Because that is no small feat. Yeah, I think that it's two things. One was, you know, in tennis, it taught me that you lose a lot of points, but you can still win a match, right? And I think that's how brokers love is. that. You can make 400 calls a week and you might only end up getting two leads that garner an opportunity to move forward on something. Mm-hmm. So you kind of have to have that mindset that there's, you know, you're going to take a lot of failures before you get to success. So failure is just a matter of growing, right? We've heard that from so many grades. Mm-hmm. I think that's you have to you have to adopt that mindset that the only way to grow is to fail, and so you have to push yourself through that. The second thing is that I think it's this mindset of I knew that why I wanted to be an entrepreneurial industry was that it was one of those things that the more you do put into it, the more you can get out of it. And I saw that with my tennis career. And so my thought processes was I looked around, I assessed my talent, I looked at who the mentors were in the industry. I matched up with two people that were killing it in the business, mm-hmm. both the manager of the office that was the best manager in the office and the mentor who was the guy that mentored me 
And, you know, this guy, Greg Harris, was 31 years old, making two plus million bucks a year. Right. And I said, all right, if that guy's doing it, I'm going to learn because success leaves clues. And so I think that's the next kind of takeaway is don't try to recreate the wheel. Find out people that are having success and go meet with them, interview them, find out what it takes. And then from there, you can take those nuggets and then go recreate that. I have so many questions because it's like you like stole my template sheet that I have in front of me before we got started. (laughs) Like one of the things you mentioned failure, like definitely want to ask you about that because you crushed it. You came out of the gates, rookie of the year, your first year with Marcus. You're going to have a tough time convincing me that there wasn't one really funny, embarrassing story where you just epic fail flop, like, uh-huh. the, like the leaving out the corned beef sandwich back in your old days, but translated to real estate. How bad was it? What was it? There's so many. Just one for old time's sake, you know, one for good entertainment value. I think one of the funnier ones was, <laughs> this is a good one. So I listed a property for a client. And we ended up taking the property out to market and we got the property under contract. And then as we were going through the process of getting it out, like getting it under contract and moving towards you know, closing, the seller was a very savvy attorney, a high-powered attorney in LA. Mm-hmm. And he said, you know, my nephew actually has got his real estate license as of late. And so I'm going to take a portion of your fee and I'm paying him. And if you try to fight this, I'll sue you. And I was like, okay. <laughs> you already had a listing agreement done? I had a listing agreement at the other contract and we were moving forward. That's and awfully so, kind of him. And so I was, you know, sitting there and I'm like, what do I do? And he scared the crap out of me. And I was, you know, you're in the business and we're right. gonna sue. You know, you're like, well, how am I I'm gonna lose all my credibility with this company? What was the deal size? I gotta it ask. Was, it was two point eight million. It was a warehouse shoes. It was a big deal to you. Yeah, Listen, right? that two point eight million yeah. bucks, especially in the net lease space, which you play in, I mean that that's what really butters your bread out of that. Man, that was a good deal for me. I was gonna make a cool forty something, you know, on half the deal or whatever. And right. so for those listening, when he says forty something, I mean his commission would have been in the forty thousand dollar range. Yeah, and it was net. So right. it was eighty gross, whatever it was. Right. I was yeah. like, so right. as someone who's a year in, look, I don't care how many deals you did. You need that money. It would have taken me out of the nook and I could have been actually put a suit on that fit. Right. Right. So he starts yelling at me and saying, I'm doing this. And if you try to go talk to anybody, I'm going to sue you. And so I didn't know what to do. And I went back to my manager and my manager, I really appreciate what he did at the time, but he said, you know, what are you going to do? And I was like, no, I don't want to get sued. And he's like, all right. And he played with me the whole time. And he's like, what do you think you should do? I said, I think I should just call him back and probably take it. And he goes, and he, he walks over to the door and he closes the door and he goes, and he Say it now, bring it on, Chris. It's all good. <laughs> and he goes, how are you ever going to make it in this business? You piece of shit. He's like, this is our money, not your fucking money. And he goes, I want you to get on this phone right now and tell him to go shove it up his fucking ass. And it was like verbatim. So this is the part he's serious. He's 100%. But before that, when the door's open, he's kind of toying around. Oh, he's yeah. toying with me. Okay. And so he then goes, he tees off on you. And then he goes, what's his phone number? And I am like soiling my suit, right? And I cannot like, I'm like, how the heck am I going to do this? This guy is like ruthless, right? So he goes, give me the number. I'm like, Jay, I can't give you the number. And he's like, you give me the number, you're fucking fired. And I was like, okay, his number is 310. And I start giving the number. This starts ringing. It's on speakerphone. My heart's pounding. And he goes, whatever he says, I will back you up. And I go, okay. So I get on the phone and I'm like, hey, Joseph, this is Chris Sims. He's like, yeah, what? And I go, I am not conceding on my commission. End of story. And he goes, you little fucking shit. I will take you to the cleaners. I am going to sue you so fast. And he goes on this litany and, and my manager, J-Dub, just says, hold. And so then all of a sudden he stops with his litany. And then all of a sudden he goes, 
Joseph, this is Jonathan Weiss, the managing director of Marks and Millichap. <laughs> and he goes, I'm looking here at a purchase and sale agreement, a listing agreement that's completely in compliance with regards to partner real estate. And I can see here that you're trying to concede or take some of the commission of our firm. You know that our firm last year did this amount in billion. I've seen that you transacted with us. So if you never want to see a deal again and you want us to sue the shit out of you, I 100% guarantee you that will happen if you continue down this road. Uh, 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 I didn't know you were on the call, Jonathan. And the guy started fumbling and he's like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. And he goes, all right, we'll get this done. We'll get it closed. Thank you so much. And we ended up jumping off the call. And Jonathan goes, listen, I've always got your back, but I want you to believe in yourself. And you got to trust that everything that you've worked so hard for is what you got to stand for. And I don't mind if you go into something like that when you know you've done right. To have somebody say, I'm going to see you and say, go ahead, man, rock and roll. Let's do it. Leave it to Chris Sands' story to be quote unquote embarrassing <laughs> and still making more money than you could. <laughs> good for you, man. That's awesome. So a lot of learning lessons there too. That's a good one. All right. So your rookie of the year, you're offline high. This is 2004, correct? Yeah. And what happens next? Yeah. I'll take you through for time's sake. So we had a great run, about a five-year run where the market just kept kind of going. Yeah, it did. We had good cap rate, compression. Like right now. Yes. Motivated a lot of sellers to sell. Interest rates were low. And everyone thought they couldn't lose, right? And then we ended up getting into... Uh, I had a deal that was under contract. Downtown is on 3rd Street Promenade. Put that side uh, into context. It was a $19 million deal. Okay. That we had a $900,000 commission on the deal. Okay. And I thought this thing was a shoe. And I had Lehman Brothers with funding behind it. Actually, it was Goldman Sachs. But okay. It was... I mean, the story would have even been more resonating yeah. if it was Lehman Brothers. And but. we had a contingency removal on October 17th. So if you remember history, how it played out, October 15th was the day, I believe, that first shoe dropped in terms of Lehman Brothers filing. And so we had a call with the buyer and seller on that day and uh, the 17th. And the buyer said, good news, I'm removing contingencies. And I was like, yes, we got the deal. And he goes, so yeah, we'll move forward. We'll close. And he said, price was 19 too. And he goes, so yeah, we'll get all the paperwork buttoned up. We're good to go. And I'm sitting there fist pumping. I'm so excited. I'm like, this is going to make my career. And he says, you know, um, oh, there's only one thing I got to talk to you about. And he goes, what's that? And he goes, the price. And he goes, you know, we're going to have to, with all this stuff going on in the news and our funding and everything, we're going to have to drop the price. And he goes, what? And he goes, yeah, we're going to have to drop it from 19.2 to 11.2. <laughs> and the guy goes, thanks, we're done. And he clicks the phone, he hangs up, and that was the end of the deal. And so from that year, which was based... So your seller obviously killed it, just to be clear. Deal. Yeah. It's only an $8 million price reduction. Yeah, nothing big. My wife worked at Yahoo. She was out. She had a great career. Okay. We got pregnant with our first kid. Timing's perfect. Perfect. And then she got let go from Yahoo. And we went from doing unbelievable to selling one deal, one deal that year in 2008. Okay. So through a lot of prayerful nights, a lot of like figuring out what was the next thing for me, I knew that I loved what I did. I enjoyed the whole aspect of brokerage, of building relationships, identifying clients, crumbing friends with them, partners with them, and helping them to garner you know, capital out of what their hard work was and then benefiting together. It was a really fun process. And I was learning a ton along the way. Right. So I went home one night and I said, listen, my wife said to me, you need to go get a job. And I felt so bad inside because I thought, what have I been doing? I've been working 78 hours a week. I'm building a career, not a job. Right. And she was looking at it from the vantage point of going to earn a safe paycheck. Right. And I said, listen, if we go get a safe paycheck, it's going to take us 30 years to create the life that we want to create. I said, if we do and we stick with this and we figure out a way and we dig in and we have grit like we did from our sports days, we will create the life that I know that we're being called to create. 
And so I said, all right, let's do this. I went that night and I was couldn't sleep. And I Googled honesty and brokerage because what killed me was that I felt like there were so many brokers out there, not all, but so many that when it came down to a deal, they conceded on their values. They conceded on what was right or wrong in an effort to make a commission. And I hated that. I hated it. Just as something was tugging at me to type in honesty and brokerage and nothing popped up, not anything on any URL, any search engine. And I said, there's got to be something to this. How do we create a business or a company that is focused on how do you do something in a gray industry in a black and white way? And that was the catalyst. And so about three, four months later, we similar to opportunity here, we had a company that let me sublease some space. They literally like put two pennies together. I went from being positive, very, very affluent at a young age to being $180,000 in debt. And we started saying- You took the debt off of the business or to live? I mean- Basically off of credit cards and borrowing anything we could in order to get started. Wow. Yeah. And I had a kid and my wife was trying to figure out how to work back at Yahoo in a contract position to kind of keep us afloat. So we were down to one month, one month. Where I, we I mean, my chills, not- my chills are <laughs> bursting out of my skin right now. And that's entrepreneurship, <laughs> right? Like getting I, punched yeah. in the face out of the get-go and, and figuring out a way to rebound. And I take no credit for it. I really, I have an unbelievable wife and I give all my credit to the higher power. But at the end of the day, man, this goes back to, again, is you have to have to trust that if you're being called to do something, no matter how scary it is, you got to go for it. Because so much of life is people that are afraid to take that chance. And my, the best advice I ever heard along the way, and there's been a ton, was when you get to the end of your life and you're about to take that last breath, all you wanted to be able to do is go, wow, that was amazing. Right. You don't want to go, man, I wish I did. Right? I mean, yeah, we're all going to die. So you might as well get out swinging. Right. And so every time I say that, man, I get the chills too, because I always have to ask myself, am I playing life to the fullest? Right. And it doesn't always mean you have to go bigger and better. It doesn't always mean you have to have a bigger house, a bit more cars, more expenses. Bigger and better could just be slowing down and enjoying it. It could be being a better version of you. Right. But I think what really inspired me along this journey was how do we create a company that could create an environment where people could wake up every day and feel like there's an option out in the industry to go work for a company that they're proud of, that has values, has a culture that's about honesty and integrity and doing the right thing and win, win or no deal. It's about Seeking to add value first, knowing you'll get taken care of. It's about teamwork. It's about collaboration. If you can wear that jersey every day and we can take care of that culture and maintain that no matter how big we get, then I think our mission right now is to go out and create the best versions of you and whoever wants to be a part of that company. So anybody that walks in the door with SIG, I want to help you and inspire you to be the best version of yourself. Love that. And to kind of validate what you're saying as an investor developer... I can tell you that I've been on the phone with multiple SANS brokers and multiple offices and said, Hey, is this a deal I should look at? And they'll say, and they'll be selling it. Like their job, their fiduciary is to the seller, to the seller only, to make them whole and to sell it and to make a commission, what's best for them too. And they'll go, Zuck, I know you. This is not a deal for your platform. And I have a, the utmost respect. And I'm able to call not only you, but some of the agents in your various offices across the country yeah. and have candid conversations because they would rather see me succeed and maybe list something with me down the line rather than just try to sell me a deal with a, you know, at a $2 million price tag, make their fee and move on. Yeah. And so I give you all the credit in the world for instilling those values and making it a non-negotiable because it's out there. It reeks out there in a positive way. Awesome. And so, so good for you for building that type of culture there. You got great advice along the way. You mentioned that. Tell me about your mentors. I mean, you didn't get here by accident. So, I mean, definitely a key mentor in my life. 
besides my parents, sure. I give a tremendous amount of appreciation, respect for everything. You know, I had the really good fortune when we started Sam's Investment Group as well. There was a gentleman, his name is Reagan Dixon, and he's uh, 73 years old today. Okay. We've been working together for 10 years. So basically the birth of the company. He had his coaching career was starting to pick up. And he had formerly been a key, uh, like a high producing broker. Then he was the manager at Cushman Wakefield in Dallas, which was the number two office in the country. Got it. Across all sectors? Across all sectors. Okay. And Got so it. the guy was running a $47 million producing revenue producing company back in like, let's call it late 90s, early 2000s. Really? I mean, yeah. that math, that's above, I went to Alabama, that math's above my pay grade. But... I was averaging about a million dollars a producer in his office on average. So at 47 gross in commissions, what type of volume is he selling? I that? see that probably, I don't have to look at the billions, it's somewhere in the hundred billion. Okay. In terms of like total dollars. So he sold a shitload of real estate. A shit ton of real estate. Right. Yeah. Okay. So when he was starting to birth his coaching career and really trying to pick up some all-star clients. And I said, I'm not an all-star, but I want to become one. And I had a great career. And I said, look, I'm building this company. I want you to, will you work with me on a contingency? He had a monthly rate that I couldn't afford. Sure. And I said, would you work with me where it was a lower amount, but then I'd pay you once I started kicking. And he said, listen, I believe in you. You're going to make this work. And so out of the gate, he goes, but I believe in you so much that I need you to pay the amount. And I thought that was key too. So I put skin in the game more than I had. Yeah. And I coached with him and we've been coaching for 10 years. And, wow. you know, he's got so many life lessons, things that I won't share on this podcast for confidentiality for him, but in terms of losses he's had along the way, sure. life experiences that again, happy to talk about another day that shared a lot with me about looking at life from a bigger perspective, right. you know, and we joked a second ago about curing cancer. You know, we're not curing cancer. We're helping people make a lot of money or getting out of problems. A big driver, though, for me when we started this was knowing that it had a bigger purpose, right? So we talked about helping people to be the best versions of themselves and growing people to be that. The other part of this is the whole engine of the company, in my mind, is to grow and build SIG Gives, which is our charitable organization within the company. And so, yeah, we've got a goal every year to continue to build that up. Last year, we had a record year in terms of donations. We made over $800,000 in donations we gave wow. to different organizations. Wow. Probably the most staggering number that we've heard yet today. Yeah. And there's been some staggering numbers. That's a, no, that's a big deal. And I don't say that because I want to banner it. It's one of those things that if it can have a ripple effect on other people doing that, that's what I want to inspire. Amen to that. So that's I awesome. Know. But I think a big driver for me is giving back and making a difference in these communities. Our company every quarter does a community outreach thing where an office goes to a local community and whether it's Meals on Wheels or Habitat for Humanity, we go and do a local like day of community service and it bonds the group together, but it also gives back and it's such an awesome thing. And it's so much more than slinging deals and doing broker transactions, right? right? There's something to be said for being out there with the people too and, and doing whatever service it is. Although the way you're opening offices, you might have to have two per quarter. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. So tell me your mentor's name again. Yeah, Reagan Dixon. Reagan Dixon. God, how do I forget such a powerful name? Who else? Any other mentors? Yeah, that... I mean, I've had uh, so many different brokers along the way that I've watched do their career. Right. And we've emulated things of how they've done it or... Uh, you know, just give, I think, and again, I don't need to name any names because I don't want to highlight one person and miss another. Right. But there's just been some key brokers along the way that I think have really shown how to do it and also the ones that have been warnings. And that's, this is kind of a fun little thing. I, I have three kids. I tell my kids every day that in life, you're either a warning or you're an example. Be an example. Okay. And I think that's a real big life lesson for me is, you know, be an example. So yeah. you want to be the person people are talking about being like rather than the person that people are saying, don't be like that person. 
And so that's what I really sought out was people that were having success in the arena. And then we figured out what were some of the things that they were doing. And then not just emulating them, but like my client who rebuilt that company and sold it for 120 million, that tennis lesson I gave, how do you do it different? How do you do it in a way that's better? How do you differentiate yourself so that you can set yourself apart? Hell of a story. So I've heard about your climb through Mark Similichap and then the recession smacking you in the face like it did a lot of other people and getting going with Sands, meaning your company. Tell me about your progression and, and how things have evolved a little bit over the last 10 years for you guys. What was it like at the beginning? Obviously, it started basically with just you, right? And yeah. today you have like a gajillion brokers with six offices all over the place and you're doing deals left and right. So walk us through how we got there. Yeah. So like I said, we had an intern who was Max Friedman, who's like a brother to me. Yeah. You know, I giggle because when you hear Max Friedman's name, the first thing you don't think of is intern. No. The guy's a major producer in the industry. Oh yeah. He's a force. And we're so lucky to be if he's a brother and that he's done as well as he has. It's been such a great thing. I love watching him do that. It's like watching one of my siblings grow because that's how tight we are. Right. Dan Hugesteger joined us very shortly thereafter as well. And we're so lucky to have him, another fellow brother that's, you know, we had a career at CBRE, but just watching him blossom and become sort of the leader in the industry as well has been awesome. So many key guys like Kabi Abrahimi who walked in the door and wanted to see if he can do commercial real estate as a leasing broker. And I was like, don't do leasing, although God bless leasing. Hey, let's we'll, we'll stop bashing the leasing guys now. No, I said doing best in sales because that was all I had. And had I known, I would have done it all. But you know, I think that was some of the key things is having him walk in the door and now watching his growth over the last eight and a half years and the success he's had. You know, I think what's been really fun is organically building this, which we did the first three years in Santa Monica when my wife was like, let's move to the other side of the country for better quality of life for our family. Oh, is that the motive? I was going to ask yeah. about that because... I would have thought the process would have been is you trusted, which I'm sure this is a byproduct of it, but you trusted Kabe, Max, and, I did. and those and guys. I did. And that way, and that I thought it would have been strictly driven on how do you grow the business? I would have figured it was your idea. So no, this is kind of it was just cool. This is a cool, again, like divine intervention moment where three years in, we had our best year. We had a big sale. We sold a Safeway single tenant at least deal in Santa Monica. It was a bond. Okay. For a 2.8 cap. That's it? 2.8 cap? cap? Yeah. <laughs> $17.6 million. And it had 17 years left in the lease. How many years? 17 years. Oh, that's that's crazy. See, like I hear 2.8 cap and that's insane to me for multiple reasons. And then I hear that there's 17 years left. That's the part that really shakes me though. I mean, I would have figured it was a, like a well below market rent, whatever. Yeah. I think that's what makes the 2.8 cap so impressive. It was crazy. So obviously they were a cash buyer. It was cash buyer. We had Not that that matters. But... Yeah, we had 30 offers on the deal. We'll get into that in another podcast. But the point was, is that was a good PR catalyst for us. So that was like your big break. That broke on the same in side. terms of like a recognition of, wow, these guys can really make it happen. And so I think, again, a small story, which I don't, won't go into detail, that cool called that owner nine times. Finally, he called me back and said, I like your voice. I get calls every week. I want to meet with you. We had coffee at Coffee Bean. In Pacific Palisades, we started talking. It turned out he was the next professional tennis player. Oh, ding, ding, ding. There you we, go. We hugged it out at the end of the meeting. And seven months later, he gave me a listing that he never was going to list that he and his siblings all decided to finally sell. And we walked him through how we can help him out. And it was just an amazing life story. I still send a bottle of wine to Ron Williams once a year. And thank I bet you. And it's just a great, great learning lesson of how do you make a $500,000 commission through making leaving eight voicemails, is what I say. So... We built out that office. I want you to repeat that for all of us. How do you make a $500,000 commission leaving eight voicemails? There you go. That's it. So uh, it's hard work. It's hard work. And it's not taking no, but it's just not yet, right? That's kind of the mantra. 
So my wife been pushing hard to say, let's get a better quality of life. Her parents had retired in Charleston. Okay. And we decided, listen, this something seems like it's pulling us there. So we went out to visit them on a holiday over the Christmas season and whatever it was in 2012. We stumbled upon this little like area in Charleston we fell in love with. And we're like, great, let's look at it down the road. Maybe we'll retire here. Found a house, put an offer in on the house. Before we were back on the plane going home, we had it under contract. Said, we'll just rent it out. And then we're like, no, we're going to move here. And so on the way home, we curated how we were. You went from retiring here to living there pretty quickly. Yeah. We came back. It sounds like 20 minutes. (laughs) Called a company meeting with everyone and said, I'm moving to Charleston. And they freaked out. And I said, here's what's going on. I'm going to fly back every month and we will meet. And it's all good. We're going to figure this out. And the best part about it is I don't think I would have made that move or opened a second office had I not done that. And so what happened is once we moved offices across country and now we had this sort of like West Coast, East Coast presence. It really gave me a better glimpse as to how do we create a company from a multi-unit level and how do we operate from efficiencies of scale across mm-hmm. the country. And so the net result of that was we ended up having about four months in, Max called me and he's like, hey man, I want to know if I can help open another office. I said, where do you want to go? And he goes, I'd love to live in Austin. I said, well, it turns out that's dead center in the country. Perfect. And we should be able to rock and roll. And so that was how we opened up a third office. That gave us a lot of confidence to continue to build. And so that once we opened that office, it was a great thing to watch Max grow and then have the confidence to be able to play that leadership role. So you went from one to three offices like... In four years, really. Oh, okay. So, yeah. sorry, let me rephrase. You went from two to three, how quick? Oh, within the same year. Yeah. So 2013, I flew back and forth. 14, we opened Austin. And then we opened up... And then also we opened up Atlanta. My brother-in-law had been working a parallel track at Stan Johnson Company at Marcus and Millichap before. Okay. And I was like, you ready to do this? And Andrew Ackerman was like, I'm ready to go. And so we launched in 2014 as well, Atlanta. So... In a matter of two years, we went from one office to four offices okay. pretty quickly. Wow. And that's a great entrepreneurial moment too, because Liz, my wife, had not been working in business with us yet, but had a ton of operational experience working at Yahoo and some of these bigger companies. And I was entrepreneurial as it gets. And so I'd be like, ready, fire, aim. That was my mantra. Amen. And, I, and so I went out and we were opening offices and I opened an office in Philadelphia and we opened another office in Indianapolis and we had six offices. I'm like, we're going to keep opening these offices. This is how we're going to do it. And I had the whole model and I yeah. thought this is where we're going to go. And within six months, the two offices, Philadelphia and Indianapolis, completely picked the wrong people, didn't have the right processes and systems in place on how to assess if they're good or not. Mm-hmm. And it turned out to be a real ugly scenario. And I got out quick. And it was my, I call it my MBA in ownership because I basically invested quite a bit of capital and lost it. But I did it in a way where I monitored my losses. Right. right? And it taught me, hey, we need to slow down. And Liz said to me one night, we got to build the foundation of this company before you go out and build this bigger. So we spent three years building out the foundation of it. We built the platform. We built all the resources and tools, the systems and processes, the ability to transact uniformly across all offices and sort of make the fries the same way or the Chick-fil-A effect, if you will. Sure. And then finally, once we felt like we had that sound stabilization, really at the end of about 2018, we said, all right, we can do this now. We can go out and open up the next tranche of offices. Sure. What is our, our appetite for that and our bandwidth to do it? We figured it was about two to three offices a year. And so that was what's kicked off opening Charlotte with uh, Armour Goalie, which yeah. has been an awesome ad- addition to our family. And then Tom Gorman, who's launched our Philadelphia office. 
And I tell them first one didn't even matter. So we're good to go. And Tom's been an amazing fit as well. And coming from 13 year background and building up offices as a managing director as well. Yeah. And so, you know, we've had a great run already for these two offices. And yeah, it's been really awesome to watch the firm just evolve. And you see you guys opening one to two more offices a year. Yeah. Dockets two more this year, if all goes well. But I'm listen, as an entrepreneur too, I I've learned to be patient. Just because I say let's open two this year, I feel called that we need to. But I also know if it's not meant to be, timing sometimes isn't right. And you've got to be really patient in business because I think you get pushed to make money, you get pushed to grow. But sometimes growth is learning when to be patient and when to make it. What drives the location of the new office? It's usually you know two things. One, do we find talent naturally in a market that we know we can build around? Sure. Right? Denver, Chicago, Phoenix, some of the keys. We got something in South Florida that we'd like to open as well. So can we find the talent pool to be able to foster the culture we build on? Great. I think second is, you know, building out the map so that we have brick and mortar. We are expanding now. This first 10 years all net lease, we've been doing a ton other. We just haven't been branding it. We sold $135 million worth of office in industrial last year. Wow. Medical office. I would not have guessed that. Yeah. We did almost $200 million in medical last year. Uh, shopping centers, we did close to $180 million. It's not a billion yet, but I think we've got, I've got $227 shopping center property transaction history, about a billion five that we sold. And I've been waiting strategically to start to expand organically some of these different product types so that we don't dilute the expertise of what we do, but do it in a way where we could then say, all right, that's a natural fit. You guys hit your 10-year mark. You got a great reputation. Your platform's there. Let's go expand now and start to do different product types within the investment sales arena of commercial. And do you see yourself taking the existing offices you have and just basically opening up separate divisions like the industrial or the medical division within the Philly or the Charlotte or the Charleston or Santa Monica office? Already underway. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the uh, the future is super bright. I got to ask though, I mean, that's going to pull you in a bunch of different directions. Like, do you see yourself divesting your time out of pure brokerage? Because you're Chris Sands, the entrepreneur and you're Chris Sands, the broker. And certain clients may sign up with Sands Investment Group because they want Chris Sands to list the property. I mean, do you see yourself backing out of that day-to-day brokerage work and, and really being the oversight of the enterprise? Or how do you envision your future? Yeah, I mean, we're a team and that's always been a team mindset. And so the goal now is we've got so many great brokers surrounding us that when we list a property, we've got a team to support the client to make sure that they execute on the highest level. If it's a core client that I know or I have track record with, I always make sure that they're getting every client across the company gets the red carpet service. But if they're like, I have to have you, I'm very transparent with letting them know that you've got best-in-class team that's helping out with the execution. Mm-hmm. If you look at all the top brokers, they all have a team. you know, And you want to obviously hear the voice from that broker that they're here in the day-to-day and know what's going on. But the reality of the situation is you're better served as a client right now, knowing that you've got my team or the team behind right. you doing it and the different product types that we've expanded into than trying to get me to do every deal. So yes, I am definitely allowing the team and I'm having the team grow as we as we've evolved. We're doing more guys are getting more opportunity as we get more listings that come through my filter. And then we're just continuing to thrive and grow from there. Are you gonna miss having hundred or close to hundred percent of your time in the day-to-day of actual brokerage and the cold calling and the negotiating of the LOIs and putting out the fires when due diligence is coming up on a property? You know, I think I get to do it ancillarily through the brokers, sure. which I love. I love growing people. I really do. And I love coaching and mentoring. So watching that happen and evolve has been super exciting as well. And I'm excited to see that continue to grow. And I think, you know, there's a whole other arm to the company. There's so much room for growth and expansion. I know that I need to focus on in order for us to evolve as a firm that we need to be and want to become. So if I stay in that limited role of brokerage in terms of me 
I think it won't allow the firm to do is what we need it to do unless I can really step up and do that. So, sure. Yeah. Wow. I can sense the passion in your voice and in your your expressions and it's inspiring. It's motivating. It sounds like I, I can't wait to see what you do at the company and how it takes off. And it's it's been awesome to watch even since we've gotten to know each other over the last couple of years. And I like to do this before we wrap up the show. I, I like to throw a couple of rapid fire questions yeah. on you just to keep you on your toes, man. Keep you a little nervous. So and you might have already answered this, but I'm going to challenge you to come up with a different one. What's the craziest deal you've ever worked on? Roger Webster, Venice, California, said he wanted to buy a property. And he called me. He said the only time I could meet is on a Saturday morning at 10 o'clock. Showed up at his bungalow loft. A woman answered the door. She said, please come back. You'll meet Roger. I came around the corner of his like little you know, loft. And he had on a trucker hat. He was wearing this necklace that was like all these different concerts that he'd gone to that he'd taken the wristbands and he had re put like taped them back together oh wow at the bottom of it, it was all the keys to all the properties that he owned he was wearing jeggings women's platform high heel flip-flops and he had grown out his toenails and his fingernails to where they were wrapped around like three to four different times colored all these different things only in california does a multi-millionaire dressed like that yeah. and i was so thrown off he was drinking red wine and eating pork chops at 10 o'clock in the morning. Okay. They were raw. Okay. And he said, do you want some? And I said, no, thank you. With all due respect. He said, let's get in the car. We'll drive. We started driving down Abbot Kinney, which is a very popular little corridor in basically Venice, California. And he started waving at people. And he's like, I own that building. 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 The guy okay. probably owned a hundred million dollars worth of real estate. Just in this little car tour. Car tour. So we get to the property that he wanted to buy. And I had my little camera, my snapshot camera that I was going to take to take some pictures to help kind of put together a package for the investment he was going to buy. And he is leaning out the car door, taking pictures as well, down Venice Boulevard and shooting all these shots. Like, I'm like, Roger, you're going to kill yourself doing this. And as we get to the property, he's lying on the cement, on the sidewalk, taking pictures of this property. And I was like, no one's going to believe this story if I don't take pictures. So I'm pretending to take pictures of the story of this building. And all I'm doing is taking pictures of Roger. <laughs> <laughs> so that someone will believe the fact that this guy... You don't even care if you get a listing at this point. Care. And we ended up... And I never made a dollar with Roger Webster, but it was one of the funniest stories that I ever in my career, like in terms of how weird it is that you experience people like this in this industry. Yeah, especially in California. Roger, wherever you may be, I hope you're listening. I would love to meet you one day, buddy. So you didn't do a deal, but you could have worked on a deal. So we'll count that as the craziest deal you've ever worked on. Taking it back a little bit more serious for a second. A lot of our listeners out there are either trying to break into the industry and maybe they're you know, senior in college and don't have a way in through their parents or whatever it may be, or they're that person who's been in brokerage or whatever it may be for a few years and, and they want to become you. They want to they have the ambition, but they need the mechanical skills or ideology to get there. What advice do you have for those people? Yeah. Two things. Number one, don't become me. Become the best version of you. And I think that everybody in life has a tendency to compare themselves to others. That is the greatest, greatest deficit you'll have in life. Why would you set your marker against somebody that's accomplished something when you possibly are being called to do something exponentially better, right? And that's the weirdest thing that we do as human beings. So set the bar for whatever it is you feel like you're being called and go play at that highest level possible. Learn from other people. Right. Study them, but don't be be them. But focus on being the best version of yourself. The second thing is this is a risk-reward world. End of story. If you're willing to take risk, if you're willing to have faith, if you're willing to find something that you want to do most of the times, it's outside of your comfort zone. Most of the times. In fact, almost all the time. Like when you called that uh, client back and said, you're going to pay me my full fee. You were shaking a little bit. I'm sure you were pretty scared. Absolutely. So you have to have to get comfortable with being uncomfortable. 
And I think that's one of the great challenges of today is people strive to get into their comfort zone. Mm-hmm. And it's this whole sense of that everything is, ha- is like status quo and I feel good. Certainty is, I think, a good thing, but it's also one of our greatest, greatest challenges as human beings. And if you look at the people that made global changes, the people that made a ripple effect in anything, in an industry or just you name it, they're willing to do something outside of their comfort zone. They're willing to push themselves to do something that ultimately garnered a way bigger impact. And so if you want to live your life to the place where you look back and go, wow, that was amazing, then I think you have to push yourself to do something out of your comfort zone. Perfect segue into my next rapid fire question, which will... What do you want your legacy to be like? I would love it if in the near future, I was able to literally step out of the role of the company and the company evolves to take on all the things that we've talked about in terms of our culture, leadership, growing this thing to being the best version of itself and themselves. And I wasn't even there one day. That to me is true leadership. I think that the testament to management versus leadership is management, you have to be there leadership, you don't. And whatever you've created or whatever you've motivated or started or whatever that seed is that you've planted grows way further than what what you could ever become. You seem like a reader. I I love reading, but I will say, honestly, I run my life pretty good in terms of my kids and my time with my kids and my wife. I don't get a chance to read a ton. So I'm very efficient with what I read. And I make sure I listen to things, but I really, really like listening to things that are like about wisdom and about personal growth and about like your inner, inner like growth, I guess it is. And I think this is one thing I definitely have to share with everybody. Everybody is searching for knowledge. I feel like, right? People are so fascinated with this thirst for knowledge and growth and learning. And I think it's a beautiful thing. I can tell you though, one of the things that I felt prey to growing up was this concept that there was this magic information that I was going to get, this silver bullet, or if I gathered enough knowledge, I was all of a sudden going to be able to do it. And I think the best piece of advice I can give to anybody, no matter what your age is, is the power of silence and being completely silent every day for 15 to 30 minutes and just listening and just completely getting to a place where you can connect with yourself and your creator and then listen and ask, what is it you're calling me to do today? What is it you're calling me to do in my life? And then take action on that. That is where you're going to find the most amount of knowledge. And I don't care how many books you read. There's nothing that will replace that. And that to me is the best podcast, second to yours. Boom. The best book you can read. I really think that is. And I, I feel called in this next chapter of my life to write a book or write something about you should. the secret weapon, which everyone knows how to meditate, but it's like doing this in a way that you inspire you to go take action on the things that most people don't get quiet enough to listen to what they need to do. Wow. Chris, awesome. Really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah. I know it's valuable nice what job. you're up to. Yeah. I wish you nothing but continued success. I can't wait to be your biggest cheerleader on the sideline. And I speak on behalf of everybody who listened to this. Thank you for sharing your story. It's incredibly inspiring. And we just can't thank you enough for your time. Thank you, man. And if you haven't had a chance to do deal with Aaron, do a deal with Aaron. This guy is amazing. You embody integrity and you embody following through and you embody what most people look for and a great investor and a great syndicator and a great owner, operator, whatever it is that you're going to grow to, I'm here for you, man. I'm looking forward to our growth together. I'm much appreciated. I'm humbled. Thank you. All right. Thanks, man. Thanks for listening to Limitless. If you like what you heard, it would mean the absolute world to me if you took a little bit of your time to subscribe. If not, perhaps even leaving a review, good, bad, or indifferent. And please feel free to reach out to me directly on my LinkedIn page or on our website, zuckerinvestmentgroup.com. 